Ben's son, Jack, is a miracle baby. For many years, his parents tried to have another child after his older brother's birth. They sought out the best fertility experts and finally were told my daughter had no eggs. For months and then years, they grieved for children they would never know. Gradually, they went on with their lives. Then the miracle, a pregnancy expert said could never happen. Although we waited less than a decade, Jack's birth helps me appreciate the joy Abraham and Sarah felt at Isaac's long-anticipated birth. It's fitting they named him Isaac, Laughter, since they laughed with disbelief and then joy over his birth. Many Old Testament names such as Joseph, meaning may he add, or Seth, meaning to replace, describe the parents' feelings at the birth, just as Isaac's does. Only time will tell what impact, if any, grandson Jack will have on the world. We know what impact Isaac had, especially on the Jewish nation. Isaac is the linchpin that holds the Abraham stories together. He's promised, he's born and weaned, he's bound and placed on the altar of sacrifice, and he's comforted by his wife. Isaac is the pivotal figure in others' stories. As wanderers, their stories would have resonated with the Babylonian exiles for whom the Genesis stories were compiled. Isaac, however, is the promise in each. Protestant Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says the birth of Isaac stands as the principal model in the Bible of God's faithfulness. Through his implausible birth, the fortunes of Israel are inverted. To the Israelites, the phrase inverting fortunes meant the end of the exile. I suspect most Christians know little about Isaac. They might know he was one of the triumvirate of original patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and probably know that God commanded his father to sacrifice him. The sacrifice story is well known even by those who haven't read the Bible. It's so much a part of popular culture that novelist Robert K. Tannenbaum used it in his 2008 novel, Escape. The hero, a New York district attorney, leads his son's bar mitzvah class through discussions about how an individual's decisions affect society. He asks the class, if you had been the district attorney back then and God had not intervened to save Isaac, would you have charged Abraham with a homicide? Tannenbaum doesn't reveal the outcome of the class discussion, but Abraham's response, here I am, is central to the plot, an attention-grabbing, unusual way to begin a novel. Concerning the Abraham stories, the introduction to Genesis and the revised edition of the New American Bible states, one Jewish tradition suggests that God, having been rebuffed in the attempt to forge a relationship with the nations, decided to concentrate on one nation in the hope that it would eventually bring in all the nations. The migration of Abraham's family is part of the general movement of the human race to take possession of their lands. Abraham, however, must come into possession of his land in a manner different from the nations, for he will not immediately possess it, nor will he have descendants in the manner of the nations, for he is old and his wife is childless. Abraham and Sarah have to live with their God in trust and obedience until at last Isaac is born to them and they manage to buy a sliver of land, the burial cave at Machpelah. Abraham's humanity and faith offer a wonderful example to the exilic generation. 
Genesis oral stories were written down during the Babylonian exile in the century after 600 BC, 1500 years after these events occurred. The compilers selected and arranged stories, such as Abraham's sojourn, that would resonate with the exiles. Their theme is obedience based on faith and patience. Throughout chapters 11 through 25, God repeatedly promised the sojourning Abraham land and heirs if he was obedient. Abraham obeyed God's command and left his homeland, Haran, at age 75. He fled to Egypt to escape famine. He suffered with Sarah through childlessness. He obeyed Sarah at God's command and exiled his firstborn, Ishmael. Finally, after waiting 25 long years for Isaac, the very son God promised, God now asked Abraham to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, site of present-day Jerusalem. Let's look more closely at Sarah's and Ishmael's troubled relationship. He was conceived because Sarah tried to help God fulfill his promises. She gave Hagar, her Egyptian slave, to Abraham. Brueggemann calls Ishmael a child gotten through skillful determination and planning on Sarah's part. Nothing good came from Sarah's meddling. Hagar ran away. God sent her back. Fourteen years later, Isaac was born. Ancient Near Easterners weaned children between the ages of three and five. Georgetown University professor John Pilch, in his Cultural Dictionary of the Bible, says in ancient cities almost 30% of children died before the age of six. No wonder Abraham and Sarah celebrated Isaac's survival on the day he was weaned. Now, Sarah demanded that Abraham banish Ishmael. Perhaps she realized Ishmael, now a teenager, was a threat to Isaac's inheritance. As firstborn, he and not Isaac should become patriarch. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter suggests Ishmael might have mocked Isaac as they played, perhaps pretending to be the legitimate heir, since the noun shikak may mean either laughter or mockery. Ishmael's behavior would have spurred Sarah to eliminate him as a threat. God intervened again. He promised Hagar that Ishmael would be the father of many nations, just as Isaac would. Benedictine father David Cotter says this is a story of the saving nature of God. The stranger Hagar and her plight are central. God frees those without freedom, Hagar, and gives a home to the homeless, God provided. The Genesis compiler wove together several similar traditions in this story, leaving unchanged any conflicting facts. For example, Abraham would not have placed Ishmael on Hagar's back if he was a teenager. The Bible contains God's truth, although some details may not always mesh together. Let's compare this story of Ishmael's exile to the story of Isaac's binding, or Akedah, the Jewish title for the testing of Abraham. The construction and content closely parallel each other. The stories use the same verbs and commands and have the same outcome. God provides. Scholars interpret this story several ways. Cotter explains that the word test, used only this one time in Genesis, is a hint to us readers that Abraham will not kill his son. He suggests that God's command was really a polite request. Would you take your son? That Abraham could decline without difficulty. But he also writes, 
the enormity of this command or request can hardly be overstressed. Abraham is asked not only to kill his son, but also to commit a real sort of suicide since his hope of blessings and of the promises would die with Isaac. Abraham's utter obedience was, until this test, more potential than actual. Jesuit William Miller agrees. God did not know how Abraham would act under pressure, he comments. Brugman calls this a tale of anguished faith for Abraham and us. A God who would demand a child slaughter is repugnant. We don't like this God or this test of Abraham's faith and obedience. But the story is about God testing and providing, and about Abraham's faith and yielding to God. The same God who set the test is the one who resolved the test. He provided the ram in the thicket, Brueggemann says. The late Karl Barth, a Swiss Protestant theologian, agrees. He says this text was the basis for his entire understanding of providence, the doctrine of God's full provision of what is needed for his creatures. A substitute for Isaac is not brought by Abraham, but given by God in his inscrutable graciousness. Why didn't Abraham plead for his son as he did for Sodom and Gomorrah? Instead, he responded, here I am, meaning I am present, willing, and able to do your will. Brueggemann suggests that verse 8, the only verse in the story without a parallel verse, is the reason for Abraham's attitude. He trusted that God will provide. Centuries later, the exiled Jews learned God would provide in unexpected ways in times of need. We also should learn that God will test and provide as he did in this story. Then we can yield to him in faith. The Baltimore Catechism, which introduced millions of schoolchildren to the wonders of God, helps explain his mysterious ways. Why did God make you? It asks. The answer, God made me to know, love, and serve him and to be happy with him in heaven. God doesn't promise happiness here on earth or that life will be easy. God never spoke to Abraham again. Abraham passed the test, his final exam. Would we? Until this final test, Abraham didn't always wholeheartedly trust God. Like Sarah, he helped God with similar disastrous results. He induced Sarah to lie about their relationship twice. He's my brother, he begged her to tell rulers in whose kingdoms they resided. God punished the rulers, not Abraham or Sarah. Abraham was imperfect like other biblical heroes. Moses acted rashly. David murdered. Thomas doubted. Peter denied. God used each as they were and continues to use us to carry his promise of salvation to the world. There are few examples of those who obeyed God's call with absolute trust as Abraham finally did. Mother Teresa obeyed God and served the destitute in India. San Salvadoran Archbishop Oscar Romero obeyed God and protested his government's human rights violations. He was martyred while celebrating Mass. Lutheran theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer belonged to the German resistance who unsuccessfully plotted Hitler's assassination. He was hanged for treason at Flossenburg concentration camp in 1945, shortly before the Nazi surrender. The prison doctor observed, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Each lived and died obedient to God.
God promised to keep his covenant with Abraham and us. He didn't promise that we wouldn't be tested as Abraham was. Aware of the cross that awaited him, Jesus knew an ultimate test could go far beyond even what Abraham endured. Jesus asks us to pray to be spared that kind of testing when we pray, lead us not into temptation. And prayer does change things. Consider Abraham's prayer for Abimelech. Because of Abraham's intercession to God, Abimelech's life was spared and he made a covenant granting Abraham ownership of the well in northern Negeb, a desert region near Israel's southern border at Beersheba. Archaeologists have unearthed several ancient wells there. Years later, Abraham purchased a tiny plot of land in Hebron, about 30 miles northeast of Beersheba, to bury Sarah after her death at age 127. He made his intentions clear. Sell me a burial place, he pleaded, identifying a suitable plot. He and the Hittite Ephron negotiated without referring to buying or selling. Ephron's, I give you the cave, evolved to his asking price, 400 silver shekels. Abraham didn't haggle. He likely would have paid whatever amount Ephron named. God had promised Canaan land to Abraham and his descendants. Without this gravesite, Abraham would die without possessing any of the land himself. This was the tangible down payment on God's promises. Brueggemann calls their negotiation a careful legal procedure to secure a clear title properly attested by witnesses. Today, we'd execute a contract by signing, witnessing, and notarizing it. The Hittites called Abraham a mighty leader. Perhaps they were aware of his dealings with Abimelech. His God protected him in the past and surely would continue to do so. No wonder it was possible for Abraham, a foreigner with no rights, to purchase land. Abraham dug a well and purchased a burial plot in the land God promised him. 700 years later, Abraham's descendants would finally occupy that promised land. Today, Muslims prohibit Jews from visiting the shrine that marks Sarah's and Abraham's grave. Abraham's last official act as patriarch of a future great nation was to obtain a wife for Isaac. Abraham sent his servant to his family in Haran, a month-long, 450-mile journey. He ordered the servant never to take Isaac out of the promised land. In Haran, the servant met Rebekah at the well. This is the first of the woman at the well stories we will read. Jacob will meet Rachel when she waters her sheep at the well. In Exodus chapter 2, Zipporah will meet Moses at the well. Cotter identifies six elements common to well stories. A stranger travels to a foreign land. He encounters the future bride. Water is drawn. The future bride hurries to bring news of the stranger's arrival. And a feast is held, during which the betrothal agreement is concluded. Finally, Abraham's servant took Rebekah to Isaac at the well near Beer Lahairoi, the site in the Negeb where Hagar had seen God. Wells are a source of life. The women there were also sources of life. They assured the continuation of Abraham's descendants. Add to these stories the one in John chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman whom Jesus met at the well. She brought news of everlasting life to her villagers. Brueggemann says this story is a profound statement of faithfulness to God, not only as we expect it from Abraham, but also in the words and actions of Abraham's servant 
and Laban. It reflects the conviction that all events are under Yahweh's providential care. This is a very different God from the one in the Ishmael and Isaac stories. The faith of this narrative is one in which things occur seemingly as they will and yet are credited to God. God provided. We learn more about Rebekah the sojourner in this one story than we do about Isaac in this whole book. Like Abraham, her status as a wanderer away from the land of her birth would have resonated more with the exiles. Abraham died at age 175. His sons Isaac and Ishmael, whose lives he risked, buried him. It's a fitting end to the Abraham-Sarah cycle. In coming weeks, we'll read stories about Abraham's descendants. Notice their many similarities. For example, through God, Sarah miraculously conceived her son Isaac. Isaac interceded with God over Rebekah's sterility, and she became pregnant with Esau and Jacob. Later, God heard the barren Rachel's plea and made her fruitful. She bore Joseph. In each instance, God intervened to sustain the promise of nationhood he originally made with Abraham. He inverted the fortunes of the Israelites. God provided. God's miraculous intervention culminates in the New Testament when Mary agreed to be the mother of Jesus. All the miraculous births in the Old Testament pale in comparison to this greatest of all miracles, Mary's virgin birth. Mary's yes assured God could fulfill his plan of providing us with eternal life through his son, Jesus. Like Mary, have the courage to say yes the next time you feel God is testing you. Remember Abraham's response, here I am, I am ready to do your will. <laughs>